Happy Friday, guys, and welcome back to Those Murder Girls Podcast. That's your host, Marie. And that's the beautiful Raina. How are you guys? Happy Friday, everyone. Yay, it's here. Thank you guys so much for emailing us your creepy Halloween stories. If you haven't yet, we want to know. Um, we know some of you have experienced some weird shit on Halloween. It doesn't even have to be Halloween. Just like any creepy thing that you've like encountered, encountered that has traumatized you for the rest of your life. Send it e- our way. Email those stories <laughs> in. Yeah. So make sure you guys send them over to murder at thosemurdergirlspodcast.com to be featured on one of our October specials. Super awesome. I can't wait. The ones that we've gotten are so good. You so guys, good. Yeah. You guys can also DM us if that's easier. So we're going to get right into our story today because we don't like long intros. Um, (laughs) Today's story was sent in to us by brothers Jesus and Frank from San Diego and Arizona. There is a super creepy connection that we will tell you guys at the end. So shout out to Frank and Jesus for emailing us and suggesting this case. Thanks, guys. And for sharing the creepy connection. You guys are going to die. So... Marie, my love, let's get started. Okay. In 1967, five-year-old Scott Erskine ran onto a busy section of the Pacific Coast Highway, and he was mowed down by a station wagon. Like, what a way to get the story started. (laughs) Although the boy only suffered very minor physical injuries to his body, Scott remained in a coma for 60 hours. From the accident, Scott had suffered major brain damage, and he wasn't mentally right pretty much ever since then. So because of this accident, or so they say, Scott was no longer able to determine right from wrong. We aren't sure what Scott's behaviors were like prior to the accident, but definitely post-accident, Scott would, he would like cry to his mother, often complaining of these mad headaches. He would experience blackouts and he would remember nothing when he came to. So Scott's actions took a very dark turn a few years later at the age of 10 when he began to molest his little sister. Scott would force his baby sister to perform sexual acts on him, threatening her life if she ever told anybody. Scott moved on and began to molest his sister's friends who would come over to play, also threatening their lives if they ever told a soul. I just want to kill this motherfucker myself. (sighs) Yeah, he's disgusting. So prior to the age of 15, Scott was no longer within the general population of students at Southwest Junior High School in San Diego. He was segregated and he was placed in classes for those who had, you know, special needs. Scott was clinically diagnosed with a mental disorder, and he was known by most people to be emotionally disturbed. At the age of 15, Scott had been confined to a juvenile detention center, from which he escaped from. So upon escaping, Scott had approached a 13-year-old girl. He sexually assaulted her at knife point. Scott let her go, thankfully, and he laid low until the next morning. And then at that time, he sexually assaulted a 27-year-old woman on her morning job. Again, at knife point. That's two women being horrifically assaulted in less than 24 hours by Scott. Scott had tried to live a normal life despite his mental capacity and his violent sexual urges. He would even attempt to apply for jobs. So it was one day in 1980 at the age of 18 when Scott was headed to an interview, get this, as a camp counselor. Oh, God. Yeah, seriously. When Scott let his violent urges take over. Scott spotted a boy on a bike on his way to the interview. He was able to get a hold of this boy and he beat him until he was unconscious and then brutally raped him. Scott was arrested and thrown back into the juvenile detention center where he was incarcerated. 
So while he was incarcerated, he was later charged with the forcible rape of a male inmate. Scott was then frightened to go to an adult prison for this rape. Oh, now you're afraid to go to an adult prison? Yeah. You okay, don't want to like, get what yeah. you've been giving? Let's take pity on you. Yeah, no. So he pleaded with the judge to please allow him to serve his sentence at the juvenile center. At this time, his mom had been petitioning with the court to have him admitted into a mental institution. Scott was eventually sentenced to four years, and it varies as to where he served the sentence, so I couldn't determine if it was within the juvenile system or the adult. But Scott ended up serving the entire sentence, and he was paroled in 1984. So by this time, he was about 18 or 19 years old. So at the age of 31, Scott does it again. Now, this time, he takes a woman hostage into his home for several days, Scott raped and sodomized her countless times before setting her free. The victim immediately reported this days-long torture to authorities, and Scott was arrested. He was charged with rape and kidnapping and given 70 years in prison. For these crimes, he was also told that he must register as a sex offender. As required by the sex offender registry, Scott was asked to provide a DNA sample that was entered into the national database. In 2001, a cold case squad in San Diego, California, reopened an eight-year-old case involving the murder of 13-year-old Charlie Kiever and his friend nine-year-old Jonathan Sellers. They were brutally murdered and mutilated while on a bike ride in 1993. Now, in 2001, with the explosive advancements in DNA testing since, you know, the 1993 murders, Officers on the Kievers and Sellers case submit a cotton swab with a semen sample taken from Kievers' mouth, and they send it to CODIS in hopes of finding a match. San Diego cold case detectives notified a short time later that they did in fact have a match. The DNA sample on the swab taken from Charlie's mouth came back as an exact match to the none other than Scott Erskine. Two cigarette butts found near the boys were also traced back to him. The day of the boys' murders, 13-year-old Charlie Kiever rang the doorbell of 9-year-old Jonathan Sellers' home, and it was a brisk Saturday morning on March 27, 1993. They wanted to go for a bike ride. So Jonathan heard Charlie at the door and asked his mom with excitement if he can go outside and play. Melina, John's mom, walks over to his room to see if he had finished cleaning it up and tells him, nope, not just yet, you haven't finished your morning chores. She then walks to the front door to let Charlie know that John's going to be just a little while. You know, he had to finish cleaning his room and doing his chores. It's a Saturday morning ritual, okay? So Charlie smiles and says, okay. John is back inside cleaning his room as fast as he can. And John asks his mom again now if it was clean enough, if he could go out and play. She looks in and she's not exactly pleased with what she sees. But she looks down at him and says, yes, it's clean enough. Knowing he really just was itching to go outside and play with his friend. John runs out, grabs his shiny new bike. It was an early birthday gift from his aunt. And they head out for the day, knowing to be back by 5 p.m. for dinner. Their first stop is for burgers, specifically for the Bigger Better meal from one of their favorite places to eat, Rallies. From there, the boys headed over to a flower shop nearby. John walked inside while Charlie stayed outside with their bikes. Get this, you guys. Jonathan walked up to the florist and told her that he and his friend wanted to buy their mom a rose and asked how much. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. She told him how much, and he thanked her. He went back outside, hopped on his bike, and him and Charlie rode off. Can you just imagine this entire thing going down? How sweet. I know. So sweet. 
So unfortunately, this was the last time that the boys were ever seen alive. From the flower shop, the boys hopped on a trail along Otai River. This trail was a pretty good ways from home, and Melina Sellers, Jonathan's mom, she said that she would never let John ride that far away from home. So it's now 5 p.m. at the Sellers' house, and Jonathan hasn't arrived for dinner. Knowing John's with Charlie, Melina asks one of John's siblings to call over to Charlie's house to let him know that it was time to come home. They call over, and they end up getting the family's answering machine. So John's family waits around, and there's no sign from either boy. A little while later, Charlie's mom Maria comes up to their door to pick up Charlie because it was getting a little bit late and she didn't want him riding home all by himself. When Melina sees Charlie's mom at the door, her heart sinks. The mothers begin to exchange their worries, now realizing that their sons are missing. Both mothers hop into Maria's car to go out to look for them. First, they stopped at a few of the friends' houses that the boys were known to play at, and none of them had seen them anywhere. Knowing their boys would never stay out late willingly, they head back to John's house to call the police. The police arrive and take a report. After that, Melina and her family jump into the car to start making some stops at places the kids were known to play at. While they're out, it starts to rain. At that point, Melina says that's when she knew her little boy Jonathan was dead. (gasps) Melina then heads back to the family home and immediately calls a family meeting, preparing Jonathan's five siblings for the news she knew was coming. The next day, police arrive at Jonathan's home, letting them know that the remains of two boys were found, but not yet identified. A shattered Melina faints. She says to this day she remembers very little about that visit from the police that day. Earlier, the sellers had spoken to the local media, desperately trying to get the word out about the boys' disappearance. So later that day, the family is waiting for the segment to air on the local news. The family is then caught off guard when the news reports that the boys' bodies had in fact been identified as Charlie and Jonathan. It's just so sad that the media got it out and like the police didn't even have the chance to properly inform the family. Of, I know. It's, I mean, it's just devastating. This story was honestly really hard to yeah. write. It was... It's too close to home. These poor innocent boys, like we have kids of our own and I just can't imagine... Melina had been in her room at this time alone, and she said that she could hear the family in the other room begin crying and screaming. She said she instantly started to do the same. She always did her best to keep her spirits up after hearing the devastating news that her little boy was never coming home. She put her faith in God's hands, knowing that she still had five other children to raise, and heartbreakingly, Jonathan's twin sister Jennifer Her birthday was just 22 days away, and it would be the first that she'd celebrate without her brother. Melina says her strength has got her through to today, focusing on each one of her children and the Lord. The Charlie Kieber Jonathan Sellers Foundation was born in light of the boys' horrific murders. The foundation was founded by Jonathan's father to keep the boys' memories and spirits alive and to educate children on how to stay safe. From their website, their mission reads, quote, Our mission is to promote the safety and well-being of children through education and preventing child abduction and exploitation and provide support for families who have lost a loved one at the hands of another. Our vision and my greatest desire are to ensure that this tragedy does not happen again. End quote. A park was opened in honor of Charlie and Jonathan in 2012. It was called the Charlie Kiever and Jonathan Sellers Outdoor Education Center. The park features large telescopes, climbing rocks for children, 
and their mothers helped design the concept of the park. It's a positive place that they and others can visit to celebrate Charlie and John's lives. So much is done to honor these boys whose lives were just robbed of them. It's, it's really amazing. An annual candlelight vigil is in San Diego, welcoming anybody in the community who has suffered a loss of a murdered loved one. Everyone is invited to come out and offer support or seek it. Jonathan and Charlie's moms are forces to be reckoned with. I've watched interviews with them, and they are just the most beautiful souls. John's mom is a community advocate. She's the co-founder and executive director for the boys foundation she has also written a book called always fly away it's a children's safety book and you guys this book is available on amazon right now reyna i think she actually just bought a copy i did i haven't gotten it yet though yeah yeah <laughs> so scott erskine's murder trial began in september 2003 scott was being charged with two counts of first degree murder and personal use of a deadly and dangerous weapon Scott was also charged with special circumstances because the murder was intentional and involved the infliction of torture. He was represented by a San Diego public defender. Scott's defense argued that the car accident Scott had been in at five years old caused him major brain damage, saying that this is the reason for Scott's heinous crimes. Gruesome photos were shown during the trial showing how Charlie and Jonathan were discovered. So this part gets really graphic, so if you don't want to hear it, I would suggest skipping forward like a minute. So photos were shown of Jonathan hanging by a noose from a tree branch that was acting as a beam of a doorway in this makeshift fort within what was known as a homeless encampment. He had been stripped of all of his clothing from the waist down. He was gagged and his limbs were bound. There were obvious signs of sexual assault. Jonathan's buddy, Charlie, was not too far away. His little body was in the same condition. The only difference is that Charlie was laying on the ground. He had suffered severe bite wounds on and around his genital area, which the coroner determined he suffered while he was still alive. The boys' mothers were present for each and every hearing. Throughout the trial, the defense never denied Scott's involvement in the crime, though they did ask for leniency due to his mental capacity. And to that, I say, fuck you, Scott. Sorry, I had to get that out. So the defense was focusing intently on the brain damage that Scott had suffered. The defense pleaded for a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. A mistrial was declared two months later on October 1st, 2003, when all but one juror voted for life without parole. In a second trial that took place the following year, Scott sat in front of a jury who would decide his fate. They would unanimously decide on the death penalty. A judge agreed and Scott was transported to San Quentin Prison to sit on death row with 722 others. Get this. Scott's crimes didn't only take place in California. While Scott awaited his 2003 trial for the boys' murders, a DNA match was linked back to Scott for a murder in 1989 of a West Palm Beach resident, Renee Baker. Scott fully admitted to these killings and detailed the murders, confessing to breaking Renee's neck, raping her, and drowning her in the intercoastal waterway in Palm Beach. Scott was sentenced to an additional life term without the possibility of parole for Renee's murder. Researching this story and knowing what we know now, it just makes me wonder, like, how many murders this motherfucker could be responsible for. In 2004, the Palm Beach police reopened a cold case of a woman who was murdered in 1989. 
Scott was formally questioned in regards to this case, but the questioning was under the plea agreement that was reached in Renee's case. The body of Lena Tanila, 38, was discovered along South Ocean Road in Palm Beach in June of 1989. She was stabbed and strangled to death. Now, because Scott was being interviewed under special terms, none of what he said was able to be used against him. But the detectives did have reason to believe that Scott was involved in her death. Scott, nor anyone else, was ever charged in Lena's murder. Lena's murder is Palm Beach's only unsolved murder. So if anybody has any information regarding that case, you guys can contact Detective Scanlan at 561-227-6372. So, Scott's demonic ass died of COVID-19 complications. So, whether you believe it or not, this shit is killing people. <laughs> yes. And the right ones, And the apparently. right ones. Exactly. So, so, Scott died on July 3rd, 2020 at an outside hospital near San Quentin. Yay! Maria and Melina were both shocked and filled with mixed feelings when they got the call notifying them of Scott's death. Maria had made multiple attempts to visit Scott for answers to all of her lingering questions. But Scott denied all of her requests. One question she wanted to know was how did he lure the boys to that makeshift fort? Both of the moms know that those boys would not have gone willingly. I mean, these are questions that they sadly, they'll never have answers to. John's mom, Melina, said, it is over. That part is over. She said, he's gone. I don't have to think of him. I don't have to go to the trials or any courts. I have a lot of emotions going through me because of this. In a way, I feel like we can breathe. Finally, I can exhale a little bit, let the boys rest, and let them down to rest, and move on from that. So that, you guys, is the sick story of the life and crimes of Scott Erskine and the tragic murders of Charlie Kiever, Jonathan Sellers, and Renee Baker. And even though there were never charges brought against Scott for this murder, we do recognize the passing of Lena Tanila. I feel like this is one of the most heavy cases that we've covered. Not that we're comparing any of these tragedies to one another, but I think so too. It's just, it is just a very heavy case. It's a very tragic case as mothers, both, you know, it's just absolutely my heart's definitely going to both mothers. So we're going to wrap this episode up by telling you the connection here from our listeners. So Jesus and Frank, again, they're from San Diego and one of them's from Arizona, wrote in because the one of the brothers, Frank, had an encounter with Scott. Oh my when gosh. He, yes, when he was a teenager. So Frank and a group of his friends had been playing basketball at the South Bay Rec Center in San Diego. It's like right by the U.S.-Mexico border. So Frank and his friends were done with their game and they were like grabbing their stuff and they started to walk home. Their walk home would have been like 10 minutes, I think, max, because it was only like two and a half blocks away from the center. So the boys are walking home, and they said that they had like a really uneasy feeling come over them. Super strange. They were walking home. You know, they had like all this adrenaline going because they had been playing basketball, and they just had this feeling like sink in. So Frank said that he looks up, and he sees a man staring straight at him with the coldest stare. And you guys, this is photo number one on our social media. This is the stare that Scott was giving Frank and his group of friends when they were walking home. So Frank was about 16 at the time. And he said that he said to himself that if he wasn't with his friends, that he had a feeling that this guy was going to kill him. Like, right. Yeah. Like right then and there. So he was totally freaked out. They pick up speed and thankfully they all made it home safe. 
So it's about a year or so later when Frank was watching the news with his mom that they see Scott's photo being shown on the news in connection with the Kiever Sellers murders. So Frank sees Scott's photo and he said that that same feeling came about him again. He immediately knew that Scott was the man that he had seen walking home from the rec center that day, staring at him with the coldest stare. That is so freaky. So scary. You guys go What a connection. Go over to our social media and just look at the first photo of Scott. <sighs> that is what Frank and his friends seen that day. I have the chills right oh now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So glad you made it home, Frank. Yeah, and seriously. you were able to write us in Thank what, you. 30 something <laughs> years later. So you guys, if you have had an encounter with a killer or close call like Frank's, thank God you're still here, Frank. Email us so we can feature you on one of our October specials. Our email is murder at thosemurdergirlspodcast.com or you can just message us on social media if that works too. Please don't forget, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now and give us five stars and help us move up the charts, guys. I hope you all have a safe weekend. We'll see you back here next Friday. Bye, Bye guys. guys.